welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we're on the, the cusp of Remembrance Day. We are. We yeah. are. So we're going to keep with our Remembrance Day theme. And we're probably going to do the most well-known Canadian war effort, which is the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Oh, Vimy. The Creeping Barrage. Yes. Yeah. See, you're, you're already ahead of the game. I know things. I know things about this one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a very like common heritage minute, though. I feel like they no. didn't air it very much. It's kind of set like a documentary yeah. where you're cutting in between battlefield scenes and then the war room. And so you yeah. have like the Canadian generals being like, no, this is how we'll take the ridge. And they, they love to pre-establish that. Everyone has tried to take this ridge and Everyone. no one has been able to do it yet. But yeah, that's one of the things I remember about that Heritage Minute. It's just like, it's never been done before. Yeah, it's like, it's impossible. Everyone's failed. <laughs> but that's wartime efforts. Everyone's failed. It's impossible, but we're going to try one more time. <laughs> yeah, like the Battle of Fairy Ridge is really interesting in general because it's pretty significant to the Canadian war effort. For yeah. a couple of reasons, but it isn't really like a legendary battle. It, it, it gets mentioned, but it's it's As no a Canadian, like Canadian. It's legendary, absolutely. Like to every Canadian, it needs mention, but for every other kind of allied force, it's <laughs> a bit so of a funny. footnote. That's so funny, though, because, like, as a Canadian who did, like, Canadian history, it's like, that's what I know about, like, our war tactics. Yeah, yeah. And it definitely did innovate some really important things. Um, and it puts Canada on the map as, like, an independent army that right. is extremely effective in offensive situations. But, yeah, like, other countries don't really talk about Vimy Ridge. And I think a big part of that is because the, if the war ended... In the spring mm -hmm. offensive of 1917, Vimy Ridge will get talked about all the time, but the war but just goes on for another 18 months. We all so know. It didn't end there. It unfortunately does not end with the Battle of Vimy Ridge. You have to keep going, unfortunately. Yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> um, so do you do you have any like familial connections? I feel like everybody has a connection to Vimy Ridge. No, I can't say I do. I So both of my great-grandfathers, who would have been like war age, mm. one had tuberculosis and the oh, other yes. was flat-footed. And so neither of them were considered <laughs> able-bodied to be in, um, in the war efforts. Flat-footed though man that doesn't count anymore i know i feel like tb like oh i get it yeah you could like infect people around you flat-footedness yeah. i think he just had a really chill doctor who was like right it's like listen you can't send me over there <laughs> right <laughs> i think my great-great-grandfather though it might be just great-grandfather pearly he fought pearly? at the battle of vimy ridge yeah and he survived wow um forever changed by the of conflict course. according to my father he loved horses after that point he got along with animals a lot better than people yeah, from that okay. point on and then i have on my mom's side a great grandfather who went mia at passchendaele so that's not oh. Vimy ridge i guess but like no but yeah he his name is on the cenotaph at oh. Vimy ridge i would like to go someday i would i would like to to kind of tour the area and see it my mom has been 
And she said, and she said the same thing about being in Holland and looking at their war memorials is that when you read the last names, it's so Nova Scotian, like oh, so really? many of the names. She said, especially, especially in Holland, like you go and it's just um, a lot of a lot of names that you recognize and you're mm. like, oh, and that almost like also hits like a bit harder when you see names, especially my mom commented a lot on um just at different war memorials in Europe that have ages. And so she's like, you oh, see. Yeah. yeah. So because when she went, she went as a chaperone on a, a school trip with high school students. And so they're seeing like, it's like someone whose last name is Tanner from Lunenburg and they go and they see and they're 17 and then they go and they see like a 17 year old tanner um and it's just like it just really like resonates and connects she said it's the best like behaved she's ever seen oh. like a group of high school students like the most like solemn and like respectful because yeah at Vimy Ridge and at the liberation of Holland you would have had Nova Scotia Highlander battalions yeah. so there would have been a pretty big Nova Scotia presence at both conflicts would you like to learn more about the battle of Vimy Ridge beyond would... what's beyond the creeping barrage I would love to that's really what I know and I I did a diorama on the creeping barrage actually in the 11th grade in the wait you're doing diagrams in the 11th grade hell yeah IB history <laughs> any opportunity I had to do a diagram I did one but yeah a diorama like with clay polymer clay it's just i imagine it's like all right students where you're going to need to write a a 10-page essay it's like immediate hand at the back but what about a diorama (laughs) how big does the diorama have to be to compensate for 10 pages of essay it there was an essay included as well the diorama was accompanying but uh (laughs) it was not asked for (laughs) i just provided it of my own free will probably an unprovoked Oh yeah, dia, what are they never called? asked for? Diorama. There we go. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, let's do the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Tell in, me about in it. Talking form. So now you will have done an essay, a diorama, and a podcast. All yeah. of hope. And I'm sure Vimy it was Ridge. on a test. I'm sure there was a test. Every medium. <laughs> There's always a test. Oh, I will say this is kind of uh, random before we get into it but for my studies i had to read this book called um recasting history which is for a your studies for my phd studies, studies um i had to read a book called recasting history which is a history of history programs aired and produced by the cbc thrilling so it's all of their versions of canadian history i think we need to watch the valor and the horror have you ever watched that no, but I know the name and I yeah. don't know why. So maybe we should do like a little deep dive on it someday. But long story short is that they created this documentary series, docu docudrama about World War II. And there were three episodes and they tried to focus on elements of the war that don't... Was this in black and white? I don't know. I may have seen this. It's made in like the 90s. Um, yeah. And so, but it's a lot of black and white footage. Yeah. I think they yeah. do use real footage and then it's like enhanced with acting scenes. Mm, yes. And so it's three elements of the war that don't necessarily highlight Canada in the best way. And mm-hmm. basically they just accuse Canadian soldiers of war crimes uh, throughout the whole series. <laughs> right. then, Who made this? 
these journalists in partnership with the CBC. And then that went to like a libel trial because here's the thing. If you want to accuse uh, common soldiers of war crimes, wait till, till they're dead because that conflict was only like 40 or 50 years ago at that yeah. point. So you still had a bunch of living World War II vets who were like, hey, fuck you. <laughs> I, I wasn't committing war crimes. Um, and there's definitely elements of it that are like, yeah, it's really important to talk about the bombing of German cities. But like, maybe do a little more research before you start accusing people <laughs> of yeah. war crimes. The most drama I've ever heard about a CBC history program. You know, normally it doesn't go to, to like the Supreme Court and stuff. So, yeah, the CBC. Interesting. Usually they like do their research. It, the, so the story that she presents in this whole book is that initially when the CBC started making history programs, they had a lot of affiliations with really famous Canadian historians. And mm. over time, the historian expert consultation was replaced by journalists who oh by research well it's just like journalists just have different objectives they want to tell a really compelling story yeah. whereas a historian would be like well let's take a measured approach to <laughs> you know canada's world war one and world war two offensives <laughs> just like you just like me measured approaches <laughs> with grace yeah. McNett. no hot takes no lukewarm hot takes. takes only none yeah <laughs> The Battle of Vimy Ridge was fought during the First World War from the 9th to the 12th of April in 1917. It is Canada's most celebrated military victory, and it's an often mythologized symbol of the birth of Canadian national pride and kind of national consciousness. The battle took place on the Western Front in northern France, and this was the first time that the four divisions of the Canadian Corps attacked together. Up until this point, the four divisions of the Canadian army have never actually all fought in one single battle at the same time. So mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons that it's quite important to Canadian military history. It's a BFD. Big fucking deal. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were trying to do like Canadian Armed Forces, like the, oh, no. the CAF or the, what is it in uh, RCAF? Yeah, Royal Canadian. <laughs> I was like, where are we going with this one? <laughs> that is one thing that I have learned about any form of Canadian military, and that includes like Coast Guard and like Navy, like any any nat national defense mechanisms of Canada involve a fuck ton of acronyms. <laughs> the more serious it is. It's like more acronyms. So it was the largest territorial advance of any allied force to that point in the war. So up until this point, like the World War One advances are literally like yards sometimes. But for the first time, you know, we're taking a bigger chunk of land. More than 10,000 Canadians were killed or wounded in the assault. Um, and today you have the iconic memorial that sits on top of the ridge and it honors 11,285 Canadians who were killed in France throughout the war. All of those who have unknown graves. So it is just missing soldiers who are presumed dead. They're definitely dead now. Definitely dead now, yeah. uh, unless they've achieved some sort of immortality. But They're Like Nicholas Flamel with the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> what a weird side story of World War One that we never talk about is the immortality of Nicholas Flem. <laughs> By 1917, after three years of fruitless conflict, the First World War had become a struggle of attrition. Do you know what attrition is? Ooh, it's a word that has to do with 
the war and I remember it. <laughs> but like, no, it just makes me think of an obstetrician and that's not it. <laughs> you know, you could be out of, in a war of attrition with your obstetrician. Uh, it doesn't it mean like it's like a stalemate. Kind of. Yeah. You're basically just waiting for the other person to fold. Like, yeah, okay. the allies and the Germans, they know that neither of them is going to be able to have a decisive military victory that will end the war. So they're basically right. just trying to bleed the other people dry until they have to surrender. Right. And this is largely due to the vast line of trench works that were stretching from the North Sea through Belgium and France to the Swiss border. Okay. Millions of soldiers on both sides had been killed up until this point and or were wounded in battle. And it was bringing the war no closer to an end. Such is the nature of war. Uh, you have to subscribe to the seasons. So the winter tends to be a bit of a calmer period in the war. Yeah. And the spring is when they try to mount new offenses. So in the spring of 1917, the French and the British planned a new offensive in hope of breaking through German lines and ending the stalemate. Time was of the essence. All the armies were depleted from years of fighting and struggling, and they needed to fill their ranks with new recruits. This is like three years into the war? Yeah, like three years into the war, just about. Yeah. And it's also around this time you start to see conscription. Conscription in Canada was the winter of 1916, I think. Mm -hmm. Also, a big problem for the Allies is that the Russian Revolution has broken out. So all of the manpower that you got from the Russian Empire is now out of the war. Mm-hmm. And that also means that Germany no longer has to focus on the Eastern Front because they're sandwiched in between France and Russia, the two other biggest land powers in Europe. Now they can just pour all of their resources into the Western Front and not even worry about Russia. Right. So with this in mind, in April of 1917, the French armies under their newly appointed commander, General Robert Nivelle, or it might be Neville. I think it's Neville. <laughs> Nivelle um, sounds much fancier. It sounds French. Nival. <laughs> Nival. Bobby is what we'll call him. General Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> made plans to launch a massive offensive against the German lines in the Champagne region of France. That's where they make champagne. <laughs> Correct. It's the only place that's it's real, where the champagne. real champagne. champagne comes from. At the same time, further north, the British would launch a divisionary assault near the French town of Arras, seeking to pin down German resources there and give the French a greater chance of success in Champagne. So the Canadians, fighting as part of the larger British effort in what was known as the Battle of Arras, were ordered to seize the high strategic point of Vimy Ridge on the northern flank of the British attack. So Vimy Ridge is like one part of a bigger battle that is happening. Okay. All at the same time. So attacking the ridge would help divert German resources from the French assault. Capturing this high ground would also give the Allies an important geographic vantage point with sweeping views over enemy positions to the east. As one Canadian observer noted at the time, more of the war could be seen atop Vimy Ridge than any other place in France. Because uh, France is a very flat place, at yeah. least in the north. <laughs> so when you can get on top of a hill, you don't have satellite imagery, yeah. you barely have radar, and... Yep. Your spy planes, you know, they can barely take good photos. So a hill is very important. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because of the diorama, but I just imagine the hill being like, (laughs) I just imagine it being like very small. I want to recreate the Vimy Ridge Heritage Minute, but it's just when they're pointing at the, the map. Like, it's your it's, diorama. It's claymation. <laughs> this we was do submitted Vimy? by a grade 11 high school student from Lunenburg. 
I think she's got something. You're a time traveler. That's your I'm one sure. contribution <laughs> to the past is you bring your diorama. She's like, this will solve everything. <laughs> Guys, listen. <laughs> You're like, travel back <laughs> to like 1914. Franz Ferdinand's just been shot. You're like, yeah. guys, don't even worry about it. <laughs> like, everybody just chill. <laughs> just don't even start. It's a butterfly effect, though, and Germany just sweeps through and wins the war. <laughs> I was going to be like, but we have to go find this guy named Hitler. <laughs> we got to get rid of him. <laughs> you time travel to prevent World War II, but you go to the wrong war. <laughs> <laughs> you go like way too early like the napoleonic wars oh, you're like i'm gonna kill it. hitler and they're like who i'm like you know hitler the guy <laughs> it's like i don't know she seems kind of like a witch <laughs> we don't really burn people close. at the stake anymore but i think yeah. we got to resurrect that <laughs> um anyways back to the serious battle of Vimy rich yeah uh, <laughs> So, Vimy Ridge is an unusually prominent, nine-kilometer-long rising hill in the open countryside north of the town of Arras. Okay. To the north and east of the ridge are these big plains that are important to a coal mining town, and those were both occupied by Germany during this time. So, they have the hill, and they also have this really important coal mine, which is great when you need coal. Yeah. To the west and the south were the British lines in unoccupied France, so in no man's land. German forces had been entrenched on the heights of the ridge since nearly the beginning of the war in 1914, despite several attempts to dislodge them. More than 100,000 French soldiers have been killed or wounded in previous efforts just to capture this ridge. Facing the Canadians were the German Army's 1st Bavarian Reserve Division, the 79th Reserve Division, and the 16th Infantry Bavarian Division. For our purposes, we got three German divisions up in these hills. All right. For three years, the Germans had fortified the ridge with an array of defense forces, and the whole system was connected by a web of communication trenches and tunnels. Speaking of a show you love... Peaky Blinders, they're tunnelers. Yeah, so that's... Sort of what you would have been dealing with in and around this area. There's it a lot really, of tunnels. Really fucked them up. Yeah, it's really scary. There's a lot of Cape Bretoners who were digging the Canadian tunnels. Really? Honestly, it's like these guys are cutthroat murdering gangsters because they had to be in the tunnels. Like, yeah. It's, it's like just like PTSD. someone could be five feet in front of you with a gun and you can't see them. Yeah. And that's, like, the whole thing. It's, like, the PTSD is just insane. Like, all of them are just, like, doing cocaine or opium because they're so messed up from being in these tunnels. Yeah, no one has really any idea of what PTSD is. Yeah. So they call it shell shock because they think that the sonic waves from shells are actually fucking up your brain for a short period of time, but it will wear off rather than, like, deep emotional and psychological trauma. Deep-rooted trauma, yeah. Deep-rooted trauma. I love there's accounts from Cape Breton miners who went and dug tunnels in Arras. Other than obviously, obviously they would have seen really terrible things. But like yeah. the consistent thing that they all write about is they're like, it's so easy to mine over there. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Cape Breton. In, in Nova Scotia, you have like granite kind of yeah. bedrock. And over there, it's just it's literally like chalk. Yeah. So it's really easy to mine comparatively. And they're like, we build these massive tunnels. It's amazing. <laughs> like, it's so much fun. <laughs> Everyone will talk about these tunnels forever. 
So at the widest point, the German first and third line defenses on Vimy were more than eight kilometers apart, interspersed with fortified strong points. Among the roughly 10,000 German soldiers entrenched on the ridge, many had a clear view of Canadian positions at the base of Vimy's gradually angled western slopes. So Canada is at a major strategic disadvantage because you're at the bottom of the hill, which is not good. The bulk of Canada's army on the Western Front, which was a 100,000-strong Canadian Corps with various British and Canadian support units, had moved into the Vimy area after fighting at the Somme at the end of autumn of 1916. At Vimy Ridge, the Corps inherited a battlefield badly scarred by years of previous fighting. Trenches were half-destroyed or in poor shape, and the landscape was already pulverized by shell craters and mine explosions. So throughout March of 1917, the Canadian staging area west of the ridge was busy being militarized and industrializing with thousands of infantry soldiers rehearsing their assaults on the ridge and tens of thousands more troops, plus mules and horses engaged in building roads, tram tracks, tunnels, and trenches, or hauling thousands of tons of food, guns, munitions, and other supplies up to the front lines. So it takes a lot of planning to get these battles off the ground. (laughs) To even get them started, yeah. Yeah, especially when you don't have, like, all your rail lines have been torn up because of the conflict. So you can't just put a bunch of food on a train and send it out to your men. You need literally horses and mules to carry all of the goods out to the front lines for you. Much of this work had to be carried out only after dark to avoid the watchful eyes of Germans. Some of the troops were billeted in nearby homes and villages. Others were sheltered in tented camps or in ancient man-made underground caverns, uh, the famous souterrains carved out of the chalky soil that were a common feature in this part of France. Chalky um, soil. That's what those Cape Bretoners liked. Exactly. And it's it's really interesting because living on the Western Front as a soldier is up there with like probably some of the worst human experiences ever experienced by anyone. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is interesting because that isn't the whole war experience. Yeah. You're only ever up on the front line. They do slowly learn that you can't just let people live in these trenches forever. So right. they have to go on rotations. And so once you're up at the front line, you then immediately get put at the back. And that means you're like back in civilized France. Like you're just right. in like little French country towns. So you have this like horrible juxtaposition between seeing your friends die and living in like a wet hole to I'm in like a warm French home now. Like chocolate baguettes and and brandy. Yeah, (laughs) literally. So like obviously there would have been like, you know, you're probably not getting a bunch of brandy because yeah, there's, there's a war rations. going on. There's rations. Maybe just plain baguettes. I don't know. But yeah, that was the French. It's like, yeah. okay, we'll pull back, but no chocolate baguettes. <laughs> just, just plain. <laughs> but it is really interesting because I don't, I feel like that doesn't really get talked about very much is no and and you start to see it more i think in more recent war movies you start to get a bit more of like what things were like we also are now in a society where we understand um the trauma that they didn't and so we're able to like kind of show different elements of war and like what brought like people to different to different positions and places yeah i think like a greater appreciation means that showing them not in the trenches 
right is an underselling the experience it's, as a whole it's just humanizing yeah exactly yeah. and yeah and uh, like i said like chalky soil it's not just like mud all of yeah. the time definitely not all mud of the time. sometimes but not yeah. all of the time <laughs> Meanwhile, dozens of kilometers of road and light tramways were being built or repaired to facilitate the movement of men and material. 50,000 horses were used during the weeks of preparation beforehand. New water reservoirs and pumping systems, many kilometers of new pipes, all had to be constructed to meet the water needs of the assembled army and its working animals. 50,000 horses? 50,000 horses. 50,000 ponies. Yeah, there's, there's a list of like horse casualties speaking of the last yeah. post which we did last week but there is like a number of horse casualties somewhere that you can find like the total number yeah. of horses killed in the conflict is pretty high i believe it there were a lot of horses it, but it's like no I one talks they... about the horse holocaust that's what I... i'm saying <laughs> oh god that's an image um <laughs> <laughs> I do think about that because in military there are records for animals that have been lost but there's also it's like in um police forces there's records for like dogs. So in addition to all the water systems that have to be put in more than 100 kilometers of communication cables were laid in the Canadian zone buried several meters deep to avoid destruction from enemy shelling. Mm-hmm. The Corps Number no. 2 Forestry Detachment even set up a sawmill nearby that churned out vast Did quantities they? of lumber. I just love the image of them being like, but it's a sneak attack. Like, they'll yeah. never know that it's we're like, here. Sawmill. They're like, there's a full bakery being built and like a whole town has been constructed. And they're like, but they'll never know. We yeah. built it at night. How could they know? <laughs> How could they know? Like, there's horses everywhere. They're, like, sticking leaves in their manes. They're, like, they'll never know. It's just a bush. You, you are watched, a bush. You ever watched uh, Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail? Yes. So, like, when Lancelot is charging the castle <laughs> and the yeah. guards are, like, standing outside the door, but they just keep replaying the clip of him back at the field and charging yeah. <laughs> and the back of the field and charging. I'm just yeah. imagining the Germans are the guards, like, huh. I wonder what they're doing down there. <laughs> what do you think? I wonder what they could be up to. <laughs> what do you think's going on? <laughs> yeah. So at night, Canadian raiding parties ventured across German lines to rattle the enemy. Uh, they would capture prisoners and gather intelligence. Overhead during the day, Royal Flying Corps pilots scouted the location of German gun batteries while contending with enemy fighters. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the most important work leading up to the battle was the secret construction of 11 tunnels or subways, totaling six kilometers in length, designed Whoa. designed to bring many in on the first wave of assaulting troops safely out to the front lines. So instead of having them like march out in open ground right. over no man's land, they're going to be walking underground in these tunnels. Yeah. And not only were they just like tunnels, but each subway was equipped with electric lighting, water supplies, first aid stations, and dug out chambers for battalion headquarters staff. You're you're really making war sound not too shabby. This isn't so bad. (laughs) You're really selling it. I just love the idea. It's just like, just come here on my holiday. (laughs) It's like, oh, I'm not with the army. I just wanted to see the tunnels. (laughs) I just, I just, I'm on a little trip. I'm just on a trip. It's fine. Just don't even pretend I'm not here. (laughs) Oh, just keep talking. It's fine. Pretend like I'm not here. (laughs) The assault plan called for four divisions of the Canadian Corps to attack up the slopes of the ridge in side-by-side formation. 
the British 17th Corps would attack at the same time on the Canadians' right flank. So we have the four divisions of the Canadian army attacking side by side, and then you have one British Corps, the 17th Corps. Under the overall command of British General Sir Julian Bing, and assisted by scores of British and Canadian commanders and staff officers, the Canadians carefully rehearsed the attack in the weeks before the battle. Behind the front lines, soldiers moved in in timed attacks across open fields where allied and enemy entrenched positions were marked out on the ground with tape. Uh, I love that. I love it's just like when you have to go to theater rehearsal, it's like, where's my mark? Where's my mark? stage right. (laughs) This is your mark. Literally, yes. (laughs) This is your mark. (laughs) Troops were given detailed information on the terrain and the location of enemy strong points and were shown models and maps of battlefields based on aerial photographs of the ridge. They needed my diorama. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's three-dimensional. It's way better than a single picture from a plane. Way better. So the slaughter that took place at the Somme the year before had prompted new thinking and new tactics in the British Army. So it turns out flinging a bunch of people at waves of machine gun fire doesn't work Yeah, for those of you who don't know about the Battle of Somme, it was a bloodbath. I don't know the amount of lives that were lost, but it was... was it's pretty bad. It's, it's one of the bloodiest days yeah. in the war, especially yeah. for Canadians. Like for Canadians, yeah. it's it's it pretty took, bad. Took a huge toll on the Canadian, Canadian and British, I think. Um, yeah, and the Newfoundland divisions, which were at Beaumont yeah. Hamill, which is the same offensive. Um, for yeah. for Newfoundlanders, I mean, they had a smaller division, but it's it's like twenty five percent casualty rate or something. Like, yeah, it's pretty horrific. So they don't want that to happen again. Yes, they're like, you know what, we're going to try something new. Um, And nowhere was this innovation more evident than in the Canadian Corps. So the first great change is that command on the battlefield was decentralized to the platoon level and lower. Soldiers, especially non-commissioned officers, were encouraged to think for themselves, show leadership, and use initiative. So rather than just like mindless following of orders you're encouraged to be like, okay, you're actually out in the field and you're probably going to make common sense decisions that we can't communicate to you because we can't communicate with you right now. Yeah. So the the main message that they are told is just keep moving. Do not stop. Don't entrench yourself in somewhere because then they can just shell you. Right. So follow your lieutenant. If he goes down, follow your corporal and prepare to outflank enemy machine gunners who might survive the initial artillery barrage Use grenades and follow up with bayonets, and don't lose contact with the platoon next to you. Another change is that infantry soldiers would no longer be all be riflemen. Right. Many were now assigned specialist tasks, such as machine gunners or grenade throwers. Engineering troops, or sappers as they are called, mm-hmm. uh, would also accompany some infantry units onto the battlefield in opening waves, providing help with overcoming obstacles, or quickly erecting defenses on captured positions. I do love if you signed up, you're like, it's, yeah, I'm going to war, but I'm going to be in the engineering corps. Like, all we do is build roads. And it's like, you're going into battle. It's like, what? It's like, excuse me? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I did not sign up for this. <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. My feet are flat. My feet are flat. <laughs> <laughs> New artillery tactics would also be used at Vimy in advance of the main assault including a nearly unlimited supply of shells, uh, a new shell fuse that allowed for the bombs to be exploded on contact rather than becoming buried and therefore useless in the ground. Hmm. 
Most important, the leading wave of attacking troops would move across the battlefield close behind a, quote, creeping barrage of allied shellfire. Would you like to explain the creeping barrage to people? Yeah. So it's hard without visuals, but uh, basically there's like your infantry men and i say men because there were no women um and they're all like moving along like we talked about staying next to your other platoons but then there's like artillery power and stuff behind them that's like kind of shooting over them Mm -hmm. and then they're like coming up behind it they're hopefully not getting shot i know that vimy ridge like any battle in the war was not perfect there were still casualties but it was not like the Somme, and it was, in effect, successful. Um, yes. But yeah, basically, it's like, yeah, heavy machine artillery from behind that's coming over top of infantry soldiers. Yeah. So basically, like, the enemies can't shoot you because right. they're avoiding the shelling, but behind your shelling, you're creeping up behind them. And exactly. it's one of the reasons that like synchronizing your watches is so important because you need to time yes. your movement with when you know the shells are going to be launched. Because exactly. if you move too quickly, you get hit by the shells. If you don't move quickly yes. enough, it's useless and you're just in open field waiting it to get It was very down. much like a connected process. Like you had yeah. to know what the people behind you were doing. I can I can see your diorama now. I know. <laughs> More than 980 heavy artillery pieces and field guns were concentrated together for the operation. The week before the assault, more than 1 million shells were fired at the German forces, manning the ridge itself and waiting in the reserve in the villages behind it. The intense bombardment destroyed enemy trenches, gun emplacements, communication lines, transportation, crossroads, and even whole villages. According to the official history of the Canadian Army in the First World War, a crushing bombardment fell on German positions. One Canadian observer records that the shells poured over our heads like water from a hose, thousands and thousands per day. The enemy named this period the Week of Suffering. So that's what the Germans know the, the lead up to Vimy Ridge as. <laughs> the Week of Suffering. The Week of Suffering. That's a lot coming from Germans whose whole yeah, language right? is oriented around suffering. Suffering. I was going to say, <laughs> isn't that just being German? <laughs> the bombardment continued until the 8th of April. Then in the pre-dawn darkness of the 9th of April, Easter Monday, 15,000 Canadians, the first wave of the assault, gathered at their assembly points in the underground subways or in selected shell holes or trenches above ground. At 4 a.m., the air was cold and the mud had hardened overnight. Wind-driven snow and sleet swept across the ridge, making conditions miserable. That April winter, that last little push of winter. See, that's the In thing. a rast, though. It's not like, it's not Winnipeg. How is there possibly snow? They're like, yeah. all the times you didn't yeah. snow and now there's snow. Like- <laughs> and now there's snow. Just fucking with you. <laughs> The miserable conditions were obviously terrible to be fighting in, but they did help obscure Canadians from the enemy. Okay. At 5.30 in the morning, the Allied artillery guns opened up once again, and the Canadians began their assault, keeping as close as safely possible behind the roaring artillery barrage sweeping over the German front trenches. Steady fire from 150 supporting machine guns, raking the battlefield ahead of the Canadians, gave further protection to the attacking infantry. 
On the right and at the center of these salts, the 1st Canadian Division, commanded by Major General Arthur Curry, who becomes quite famous. Yes. The 2nd Division and the 3rd Division. The 2nd Division is commanded by Major General Henry Burstall, and the 3rd is Major General Louis Lipset. So these three divisions arrived at the German front lines with most defenders still waiting in their dugouts. The 3rd Division encountered the least resistance due to the wreckage caused by the Allied bombardment. However, for the 1st and 2nd, enemy machine gun crews who had survived the shelling scrambled to their guns in well-protected bunkers. They poured deadly fire into the Canadians advancing on the German lines. Hand-to-hand fighting ensued as the Canadians leapt into the German trenches. There's numerous examples of personal initiative and heroism that takes place during Vimy Ridge. For instance, Lance Sergeant Ellis Sifton, who was 25 of Wallacetown, Ontario, silenced one of the troublesome machine guns by leaping into a trench alone, bayoneting each of its crew, and fighting off a wave of German soldiers until he himself was killed. Private William Milne, who was 24, a Scottish immigrant and farmhand from Saskatchewan, also captured a machine gun nest single-handedly after crawling up to it on his knees and killing its crew with a grenade. Milne would die later the same day. Both he and Sifton were posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross, the British Empire's highest award for military valor. Yeah. Jeremiah Jones, a black Canadian soldier born in East Mountain, Nova Scotia, volunteered to attack a German gun nest that had pinned down his unit. After reaching the nest, he lobbed a grenade and killed about seven German soldiers. The remaining soldiers surrendered. Jones made the surrendered Germans carry their machine gun to his commanding officer. (laughs) Jones was. I know. Jones was recommended for a Distinguished Conduct Medal by his commanding officer for his heroic actions during the Battle of Vimy Ridge. However, he did not receive this medal in his lifetime. Part of this might have been that he was black. So he then died in 1950 in Halifax. So he survived the war. Honestly, like we could do like a whole separate episode about like just him and his family. So like his... I think his son or his grandson is, oh, what's his name? His first name is, well, his nickname is Rocky. I think his last name is Jones, Rocky Jones. But he is like a huge black activist in Nova Scotia and incredibly significant to the civil rights movement in Nova Scotia. I think you said he's from the East Mountain, which is in the Valley. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And I I definitely have heard about the guy in World War One from the Valley, from like East Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So- Someday, maybe we will revisit Jeremiah Jones and his descendants because they're badass people. Cool. Cree sniper Henry Norwester of Fort Saskatchewan earned the military medal at Vimy Ridge. His award citation notes his great bravery, skill, and initiative in sniping the enemy after the capture of the Pimple, which was the name of one of the hills. Oh, okay. Uh, By his activity, he saved a great number of our men's lives. In 1918, he was awarded a bar to his military medal. A ranch hand and rodeo performer in his civilian life, Norwester registered 115 official kills during the war. Absolutely. Ranch hand and rodeo performer. He's a rodeo Um, clown. (laughs) He was killed by an enemy sniper on the 18th of August, 1918, during the Battle of Amiens, which it sucks because it's like so close to the end of the war. I know. Like months. Yeah. Another significant figure to come out of the Battle of Vimy Ridge was Curly Christian. He suffered multiple injuries that would leave him a quadriplegic amputee. With his wife, his wife's name is Cleopatra. (laughs) 
(laughs) No way. (laughs) And the support of his medical team. He helped lay the foundation for what would become a Canadian Forces financial and social assistance program for disabled veterans, which is still offered today by the Canadian government. So the first, second, and third divisions fought on through the day, advancing steadily through the German defenses, in some cases having to overcome determined enemy resistance, in others watching Germans flee to the east in face of the assault. Death and horror were everywhere, as recorded by the 2nd Division's 6th Brigade, which is the Iron Sixth, comprised of Western Canadians. Wounded men were sprawled everywhere in the slime, in the shell holes, in the mine craters, some screaming to the skies, some lying silently, some begging for help, some struggling to keep from drowning in water-filled craters, the field swarming with the stretcher bearers trying to keep up with the casualties. Yeah. Thousands of wounded men and also German prisoners were taken back to Canadian lines. Many of the dead on both sides were just lost in the mud or buried where they lay with makeshift markers. By the late afternoon of the 9th of April, the three divisions had captured all their objectives on schedule, and most of Vimy Ridge was in Canada's hands. At the deepest point of the advance, the Canadians had pushed the German army back almost five kilometers, which is the greatest single Allied advancement on the Western Front up until this point. That's a big jump. (laughs) Yeah, especially given that you're going literally from inches to five kilometers. Yeah, like you're you're getting like four feet and you're like, oh, that's sick. Like (laughs) we did a good job today. So that's the good side of Vimy Ridge. So this is we're talking about the good, happy sunshine part. Yeah. Things things did Winners. not go so well for the 4th Division, uh, which okay. was commanded by Major General David Watson. The 4th was assigned the far left flank of the assault on the ridge, which included the toughest objectives, which were Hill 145, which is the highest point of the ridge and the location of the memorial today, mm-hmm. and the other high point, which is called the Pimple. Each was heavily defended, ringed by well-fortified trenches, and with a clear view of the slopes which Canadians would attack. Vimy Ridge could not be held by the Canadians unless these two high points were captured. Unfortunately, the pre-assault bombardment had not done enough damage to German positions on Hill 145 and the Pimple. Making matters worse, during the opening attack, many of the 4th Division units lost contact with the creeping barrage that was meant to bring them safely onto the German lines. As a result, only minutes into the assault on the 9th of April, the leading waves of the 4th Division came under withering fire and were cut into pieces. Many of the survivors were pinned down and unable to move. Among the early casualties were numerous junior officers, uh, so company and platoon leaders, whose loss added to the confusion and hampered the flow of formation to the commanders at the rear. By nightfall, neither of these positions had been taken. The following afternoon, renewed artillery and infantry attacks with help from the 4th Division's reserve battalions finally put Hill 145 in Canadian hands. Two days later, on the 12th of April, the pimple was also captured after an hour of fierce combat in driving snow. The four-day battle was over, and Vimy Ridge was finally in Allied hands, a stunning but costly victory. The fighting left 3,500 Canadians dead and another 7,000 wounded. There were an estimated 20,000 casualties on the German side. Another 4,000 Germans were taken prisoner. Along with William Milne and Ellis Sifton, two other Canadians were awarded the Victoria Cross for their acts of extreme courage. Uh, They were Captain Thane McDowell and Private John Pattinson. 
what they do do we know extreme acts of courage okay. <laughs> i don't know exactly what they did and did they live though or were they also did they also die huge i don't think the victoria cross isn't exclusively handed out posthumously right? it's not no you can get it when you're alive but it is a good criteria it's like are they dead great yeah <laughs> brilliant <laughs> they died they must have been really brave to die <laughs> jolly good all right give them, give them two give them two <laughs> Uh, it's not funny, but it's a little funny. It's not. It's not. But history's so weird, though. Like, it's it hard not to laugh at things. We, we do a lot of weird things. The victory of Vimy Ridge was greeted with enthusiasm in Canada, and after the war, the battle became a symbol of an awakening of Canadian nationalism. I will say English Canadian nationalism. Yes. Quebec doesn't care about Vimy Ridge quite so much as the rest of us. Uh, uh, what does Quebec really care about other than Quebec? Conscription. That yeah. is their biggest issue <laughs> yeah. with the war. <laughs> yeah. One of the prime reasons is that soldiers from every region of Canada fighting together for the first time as a single assaulting force with the Canadian Corps had taken the ridge together. As Brigadier General Alexander Ross would famously say, in those few minutes I witnessed the birth of a nation. The triumph also led two months later to General Julian Bing's promotion out of the Corps and to his replacement by Arthur Curry, who became Canada's first commander of the Corps. So before this, the Canadian Corps is always being commanded by a British guy. Right. Arthur gets to be the first actual Canadian who's in charge of the Canadian Heck yeah. troops. Yeah. Heck yeah, Arthur. <laughs> Under Curry, who is an amazing offensive mind, the Corps would go on to distinguish itself in further battles, a series of costly but impressive victories that began with the Corps' great success at Vimy. Yeah. Vimy soon became emblematic of Canada's overall war experience during the First World War, especially its 60,000 war dead, a sacrifice that convinced Prime Minister Robert Borden to step out of Britain's shadow and to push for separate representation for Canada and other dominions at the Paris peace talks after the war. Yeah. This was followed in later decades by Canada's increasing push for autonomy from Britain on the world stage, a desire triggered in part by the Canadians' sacrifices during the war. In 1922, Hill 145 at Vimy Ridge was chosen by Ottawa as its site for a national memorial to the country's First World War. So the reason that they pick Hill 145 uh, is not so much because of the battle's importance uh, in part of Vimy, but more so because of its extraordinary geographic location. They're like, this memorial would look beautiful here. Like, it's more so because of that than the actual, like significance of hill 145 yeah <laughs> they're like the high vantage point with the commanding view would be visible for miles so they're just like everybody will have to look at it that's what we <laughs> <It's> want great <laughs> look at me look at me <laughs> what's there today is a massive limestone memorial um which is built atop hill 145 and like i said earlier it's inscribed with 11,285 Canadians who died in France during the war with no known grave. Mm. The Soaring White Monument, a memorial to loss and sacrifice rather than military victory, has drawn visitors for nearly a century, fueling the Vimy legend and perhaps exaggerating its symbolism as a place where Canada came of age on the battlefield. Yeah. 
So in recent decades, a new generation of scholars has begun to question the iconic status of the battle, reminding Canadians that Vimy's reputation has been largely the result of nationalist mythmaking. So a lot of our like emotional sentiment toward the battle is very retrospective. Um, yeah. In the moment, it's not really felt like some people right. feel that way, but you know, it's not the overwhelming feeling through the country necessarily, even though obviously they're like, great, we have a victory. People died. People died. That's the bigger thing that they're concerned about. Vimy was a proud moment for Canada and an extraordinary military accomplishment. Yet the battle was strategically insignificant to the outcome of the war. The French offensive of 1917, of which Vimy was intended as a tactical diversion, was a failure. So if you remember at the beginning, the reason they're doing this is so the French who are south of them will have to come up against less Germans because the Germans are going to see the Canadians and the British attacking Vimy Ridge and they're like, oh no, we need to divert troops. They don't really do that. They don't fall for the bait. So the French, the whole reason you do this whole offensive, you achieve your goal, but your buddy to the south doesn't. So (laughs) overall, the offensive is a failure. Canada became a nation, but they didn't end the war. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a fun side effect, Canada became a nation. In addition, no sustained Allied breakthrough followed either the assault on the ridge or the wider British-led Battle of Arras, which Vimy was a part of. So basically the following spring, they just kind of have to start all over again. They attack Vimy, and that's great, but it's not like the it was a domino effect that led to a bunch of other successes. It was just kind of like a singular success for the spring of 1917. As historian Andrew Godfrey writes in Vimy Ridge, a Canadian reassessment, uh, he states, To the German army, the loss of a few kilometers of vital ground meant little in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the war... that's pretty accurate. <laughs> the war would rage on for another 19 months after Vimy, taking yeah. the lives of many of the Canadians who had survived and triumphed there. Other Canadian engagements, such as Hill 70 in August of 1917, were equally impressive feats of arms. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Canada's 1918 victories at Amiens and Cambrai had far greater impacts on the course of the war, but, like, we never talk about those. No, because it, like, wasn't cool. It wasn't cool, and it's not just Canada. Yeah. It's not like all the Canadians are fighting together and they're the overwhelming force. Yeah. Canadians like, like team sports, you know? We're like, if you get enough of us together, a goal will be achieved. So, and then most importantly, like, a lot of Canadians don't know that it's not just Canadians. Like, there are British troops that mm-hmm. fight there, and they're under the leadership of a British officer. Yeah. And dozens of the other officers in the Corps were British officers. They're not Canadian officers. And they're all yeah. instrumental in planning the artillery barrages at Vimy. And while most of the infantry that attacked at the ridge were Canadian, they would not have been able to do so without the British artillery, engineers, and supply units that supported them. So it's it's very much a united effort to get Vimy happening. Right. Yet, like, somehow Vimy acquires this reputation as the place where Canadians began standing apart from the British Empire, despite the fact that yeah. the British were propping us up the whole time while we were there. It's also been argued that Vimy was mythologized in Canada because it occurred on Easter Monday, which kind of like gave the battle this weird religious significance. 
Yeah. Once the battles were identified with the rebirth of Christ, it was only a small <laughs> step to connect Vimy with the birth of a nation, uh, with the provinces mm. represented by battalions from across the country working together in a painstakingly planned and carefully executed operation, the Canadian Corps became a metaphor for the nation itself, which is from yeah. historian Jonathan Vance, a Canadian reassessment. So it's it's very much the product of a lot of really well thought out advertising and like you got to sell war bonds and you got to make it about the Canadian boys that are out there. Would you be talking you. about propaganda? It, yeah, you know, it's a little <laughs> propaganda y. Yeah. Um, granted, with like not a super malicious cause. I mean, it is good to support no. troops and stuff, but yeah. It, no, and I don't think war, like wartime propaganda, I don't think all of it was meant to be negative. I think it was just meant to, you know, sell. Be persuasive. Yeah, sell the war. <laughs> Sell the war. Yeah. Um, but then I think this is me just kind of talking off the cuff now. But like, I yeah, do yeah. think historians have a tendency to love to ruin shit for people. Uh, it can be a bit down in the dumps. So I will say that like, it's really amazing if you go to Arras and you go in down into those tunnels because it's because it's chalk like you can yeah. anyone can carve anything into the mm. walls right so you have a bunch of soldiers who are down there bored they're just like carving their names into the walls yeah you find like they're carving their hometown and mm. they're carving maple leaves next to it because yeah. like for the first time the maple leaf is something that people associate with with canada yeah because before that it, it was never really appearing on anything of national significance but now you have the maple leaf on Canadian military uniforms. Yeah. So the maple leaf, while it was used as a symbol, it's not something that's accessible to everyone. But now yeah. you have people from every part of the country, from all walks of life, yeah, like wearing the maple leaf, representing Canada, and they are inscribing their names, where they're from, with those symbols. And yeah. so I don't think it's obviously not as true as the myth making would present it, but it would be underselling the like human impact that mm -hmm. that conflict had and yeah the fact that you have a memorial there now and it's so significant to so many people is just like that's a real thing as well it's not yeah. that's not mythologizing that's like no we've chosen to identify with this place which is the yeah. same as like choosing to identify with anything it's tangible you can touch it and you can see it and you can recognize that impact Maybe this will be a callback episode. Maybe we'll come back to it someday. I want to know more about Jeremiah Jones. Me too. He sounds badass. He sounds, he sounds cool. like a cool guy. And so yeah. his family sounds really cool too. I like that. That does sound very yeah. cool. He sounds neat. Well, yeah, to all our listeners, thank you for coming back for another episode of the Minute Women podcast. We always appreciate it. And um, happy Remembrance Day. Yeah, hopefully tomorrow you have two minutes of silence and mm -hmm. take a moment to reflect on the sacrifices of Canadian troops. And when you're finished with your two minutes of silence, you can go listen to us gab on and on and on uh, over at minutewomenpodcast.ca. You can find sure our whole can. back catalog of episodes. Uh, you'll also find our links to all of our social medias there. And you can find a link to our merch store if you feel like purchasing some swag from us christmas is just around the corner so it's coming you know if if you've got a minute women fan in your life get them mm -hmm. some like sweet sweet swag uh <laughs> and they'll 
they'll thank you forever and we'll thank you forever we sure will and don't forget to rate and review the podcast on apple Podcasts. even if you're not an apple podcast listener like make an account go over there give us a five-star review type up a little review it's the best way to support the podcast yeah, it, it, it does. And we can't stress this enough. The algorithm matters. Like, it just does. <laughs> I wish it didn't. But um, the algorithm matters. And so if you can go over to Apple Podcasts, that does a huge, huge uh, amount of support for us. So, yeah. And until next week, have a good one. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.